Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 4 of The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland. Story 4. The Adventure of the Three Gables. I don't think that any of my adventures with Mr. Sherlock Holmes opened quite so abruptly or so dramatically as that which I associate with the Three Gables. I had not seen Holmes for some days, and had no idea of the new channel into which his activities had been directed. He was in a chatty mood that morning, however, and had just settled me into the well-worn low armchair on one side of the fire, while he had curled down with his pipe in his mouth upon the opposite chair, when our visitor arrived. If I had said that a mad bull had arrived, it would give a clearer impression of what occurred. The door had flown open, and a huge negro had burst into the room. He would have been a comic figure if he had not been terrific, for he was dressed in a very loud grey check suit with a flowing salmon-coloured tie. His broad face and flattened nose were thrust forward, as his sullen dark eyes, with a smouldering gleam of malice in them, turned from one of us to the other. "'Which of you gentlemen is Master Holmes?' he asked. Holmes raised his pipe with a languid smile. "'Oh, it's you, is it?' said our visitor, coming with an unpleasant, stealthy step round the angle of the table. "'See here, Master Holmes!' You keep your hands out of other folks' business. Leave folks to manage their own affairs. Got that, Master Holmes? Keep on talking, said Holmes. It's fine. Oh, it's fine, is it? growled the savage. It won't be so damn fine if I have to trim you up a bit. I've handled your kind before, and they didn't look fine when I was through with them. Look at that, Master Holmes. He swung a huge knotted lump of a fist under my friend's nose. Holmes examined it closely, with an air of great interest. "'Were you born so?' he asked, or did it come by degrees? It may have been the icy coolness of my friend, or it may have been the slight clatter which I made as I picked up the poker. In any case, our visitor's manner became less flamboyant. "'Well, I've given you fair warning,' said he. I've a friend that's interested out Haraway, you know what I'm meaning, and he don't intend to have no button in by you. Got that? You ain't the law, and I ain't the law either, and if you come in, I'll be on hand also. Don't you forget it. I've wanted to meet you for some time, said Holmes. I won't ask you to sit down, for I don't like the smell of you, but aren't you Steve Dixie the Bruiser? "'That's my name, Master Holmes, and you'll get put through it for sure if you give me any lip.' "'It is certainly the last thing you need,' said Holmes, staring at our visitor's hideous mouth. "'But it was the killing of young Perkins outside the Hoburn Bar. What? You're not going?' The negro had sprung back, and his face was leaden. "'I won't listen to no such talk,' said he. "'What have I to do with this here Perkins, Master Holmes?' 
I was training at the bull ring in Birmingham when this boy done gone get get into trouble. Yes, you'll tell the magistrate about it, Steve, said Holmes. I've been watching you and Barney Stockdale. So help me the Lord, Master Holmes. That's enough. Get out of it. I'll pick you up when I want you. Good morning, Master Holmes. I hope there ain't any hard feelings about the Asir visit. There will be, unless you tell me who sent you. Why, there ain't no secret about that, Master Holmes. It was the same gentleman that you have just got done mention. And who set him on to it? Selp me, I don't know, Master Holmes. He just say, Steve, you go see Master Holmes, and tell him his life ain't safe if he go down Haraway. That's the whole truth. Without waiting for any further questioning, our visitor bolted out of the room almost as precipitately as he had entered. Holmes knocked out the ashes of his pipe with a quiet chuckle. "'I am glad you were not forced to break his woolly head, Watson. I observed your manoeuvres with the poker. But he is really rather a harmless fellow, a great muscular, foolish, blustering baby, and easily cowed, as you have seen.' He is one of the Spencer John gang, and has taken part in some dirty work of late, which I may clear up when I have time. His immediate principal, Barney, is a more astute person. They specialize in assaults, intimidation, and the like. What I want to know is who is at the back of them on this particular occasion. But why would they want to intimidate you? It is this Harrow-Weald case. It decides me to look into the matter. For if it is worth anyone's while to take so much trouble, there must be something in it. But what is it? I was going to tell you when we had this comic interlude. Here is Mrs. Maberly's note. If you care to come with me, we will wire her and go out at once. Dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I read, I have had a succession of strange incidents occur to me in connection with this house, and I should much value your advice. You would find me at home any time to-morrow. The house is within a short walk of the wheeled station. I believe that my late husband, Mortimer Maberly, was one of your early clients. Yours faithfully, Mary Maberly. The address was the Three Gables Harrow Wheeled. So that's that, said Holmes. And now, if you can spare the time, Watson, we will get upon our way. A short railway journey and a shorter drive brought us to the house, a brick-and-timber villa standing in its own acre of undeveloped grassland. Three small projections above the upper windows made a feeble attempt to justify its name. Behind was a grove of melancholy half-grown pines, and the whole aspect of the place was poor and depressing. Nonetheless, we found the house to be well furnished, and the lady who received us was a most engaging elderly person who bore every mark of refinement and culture. "'I remember your husband well, madam,' said Holmes, "'though it is some years since he used my services in some trifling matter. "'Probably you would be more familiar with the name of my son, Douglas.' Holmes looked at her with great interest. "'Dear me, are you the mother of Douglas Maberly? "'I knew him slightly, but, of course, all London knew him. What a magnificent creature he was! Where is he now? Dead, Mr. Holmes? Dead. He was attaché at Rome, and he died there of pneumonia last month. I am sorry. One could not connect death with such a man. I have never known anyone so vitally alive. He lived intensely, 
every fibre of him. Too intensely, Mr. Holmes, that was the ruin of him. You remember him as he was, debonair and splendid. You did not see the moody, morose, brooding creature into which he developed. His heart was broken. In a single month I seemed to see my gallant boy turn into a worn-out, cynical man. A love affair? A woman? Or a fiend? Well, it was not to talk of my poor lad that I asked you to come, Mr. Holmes. Dr. Watson and I are at your service. There have been some very strange happenings. I have been in this house more than a year now, and as I wished to lead a retired life, I have seen little of my neighbours. Three days ago I had a call from a man who said that he was a house agent. He said that this house would exactly suit a client of his, and that if I would part with it, money would be no object. It seemed to me very strange, as there are several empty houses on the market which appear to be equally eligible, but naturally I was interested in what he said. I therefore named a price which was five hundred pounds more than I gave. He at once closed with the offer, but added that his client desired to buy the furniture as well, and would I put a price upon it. Some of this furniture is from my old home, and it is, as you see, very good, so that I named a good round sum. To this also he at once agreed. I had always wanted to travel, and the bargain was so good a one that it really seemed that I should be my own mistress for the rest of my life. Yesterday the man arrived with the agreement all drawn out. Luckily I showed it to Mr. Sutro, my lawyer, who lives in Harrow. He said to me, "'This is a very strange document. Are you aware that if you sign it you could not legally take anything out of the house, not even your own private possessions?' When the man came again in the evening I pointed this out, and said that I meant only to sell the furniture. "'No, no, everything,' said he. "'But my clothes? My jewels?' Well, well, some concession might be made for your personal effects, but nothing shall go out of the house unchecked. My client is a very liberal man, but he has his fads and his own way of doing things. It is everything or nothing with him. Then it must be nothing, said I, and there the matter was left. But the whole thing seemed to me so unusual that I thought, here we had a very extraordinary interruption. Holmes raised his hand for silence. Then he strode across the room, flung open the door, and dragged in a great gaunt woman whom he had seized by the shoulder. She entered with ungainly struggles like some huge awkward chicken, torn squawking out of its coop. "'Leave me alone! What are you a-doing of?' she screeched. "'Why, Susan, what is this?' "'Well, ma'am, I was coming in to ask if the visitors was staying for lunch when this man jumped out at me.' I have been listening to her for the last five minutes, but did not wish to interrupt your most interesting narrative. Just a little wheezy, Susan, are you not? You breathe too heavily for that kind of work. Susan turned a sulky but amazed face upon her captor. Who be you, anyhow? And what right have you a-pullin' me about like this? It was merely that I wished to ask a question in your presence. Did you, Mrs. Maberly, mention to anyone— that you were going to write to me and consult me? No, Mr. Holmes, I did not. Who posted your letter? Susan did. Exactly. Now, Susan, to whom was it that you wrote or sent a message to say that your mistress was asking advice from me? 
It's a lie. I sent no message. Now, Susan, wheezy people may not live long, you know. It's a wicked thing to tell fibs. Whom did you tell? Susan, cried her mistress, I believe you are a bad, treacherous woman. I remember now that I saw you speaking to someone over the hedge. That was my own business, said the woman sullenly. Suppose I tell you that it was Barney Stockdale to whom you spoke, said Holmes. Well, if you know, what do you want to ask for? I was not sure, but I know now. Well, now, Susan, it will be worth ten pounds to you if you will tell me who is at the back of Barney. Someone that could lay down a thousand pounds for every ten you have in the world. So, a rich man. No, you smiled. A rich woman. Now we have got so far, you may as well give me the name and earn the tenor. I'll see you in hell first. Oh, Susan, language. I'm clearing out of here. I've had enough of you all. I'll send for a box tomorrow. She flounced for the door. Goodbye, Susan. Paragoric is the stuff. Now, he continued, turning suddenly from lively to severe, when the door had closed behind the flushed and angry woman, this gang means business. Look how close they play the game. Your letter to me had the 10 p.m. postmark, and yet Susan passes the word to Barney. Barney has time to go to his employer and get instructions. He, or she, I incline to the latter from Susan's grin when she thought I had blundered, forms a plan. Black Steve is called in, and I am warned off by eleven o'clock next morning. That's quick work, you know. But what do they want? Yes, that's the question. Who had the house before you? A retired sea captain called Ferguson. Anything remarkable about him? Not that I ever heard of. I was wondering whether he could have buried something. Of course, when people bury treasure nowadays, they do it in the post office bank. But there are always some lunatics about. It would be a dull world without them. At first I thought of some buried valuable. But why, in that case, should they want your furniture? You don't happen to have a Raphael or a first folio Shakespeare without knowing it. No, I don't think I have anything rarer than a Crown Derby tea set. That would hardly justify all this mystery. Besides, why should they not openly state what they want? If they covet your tea set, they can surely offer a price for it without buying you out lock, stock, and barrel. No, as I read it, there is something which you do not know that you have, and which you would not give up if you did know. That is how I read it, said I. Dr. Watson agrees, so that settles it. Well, Mr. Holmes, what can it be? Let us see whether by this purely mental analysis we can get it to a finer point. You have been in this house a year, nearly two. All the better. During this long period, no one wants anything from you. Now, suddenly, within three or four days, you have urgent demands. What would you gather from that? It can only mean, said I, that the object, whatever it may be, has only just come into the house. Settled once again, said Holmes. Now, Mrs. Maberly, has any object just arrived? No, I have bought nothing new this year. Indeed, that is very remarkable. Well, I think we had best let matters develop a little further until we have clearer data. 
Is that lawyer of yours a capable man? Mr. Sutro is most capable. Have you another maid, or was the fair Susan, who has just banged your front door, alone? I have a young girl. Uh, try and get Sutro to spend a night or two in the house. You might possibly want protection. Against whom? Who knows? The matter is certainly obscure. If I can't find what they are after, I must approach the matter from the other end and try to get at the principal. Did this house-agent man give any address? Simply his card and occupation, Haynes Johnson, auctioneer and valuer. I don't think we shall find him in the directory. Honest businessmen don't conceal their place of business. Well, you will let me know any fresh development. I have taken up your case, and you may rely upon it that I shall see it through. As we passed through the hall, Holmes's eyes, which missed nothing, lighted upon several trunks and cases which were piled in the corner. The labels shone out upon them. Milano, Lucerne, these are from Italy. They are poor Douglas's things. You have not unpacked them? How long have you had them? They arrived last week. But, you said, why, surely this must be the missing link. How do we know that there is not something of value there? There could not possibly be, Mr. Holmes. Poor Douglas had only his pay and a small annuity. What could he have of value? Holmes was lost in thought. Delay no longer, Mrs. Maberly, he said at last. Have these things taken upstairs to your bedroom. Examine them as soon as possible and see what they contain. I will come tomorrow and hear your report. It was quite evident that the Three Gables was under very close surveillance, for as we came round the high hedge at the end of the lane, there was the Negro prize-fighter standing in the shadow. We came upon him quite suddenly, and a grim and menacing figure he looked in that lonely place. Holmes clapped his hand to his pocket. "'Looking for your gun, Master Holmes?' "'No, for my scent bottle, Steve.' "'You are funny, Master Holmes, ain't you?' It won't be funny for you, Steve, if I get after you. I gave you fair warning this morning. Well, Master Holmes, I done think over what you said, and I don't want no more talk about that affair of Master Perkins. Suppose I can help you, Master Holmes? I will. Well, then, tell me who is behind you on this job. So help me the Lord, Master Holmes. I told you the truth before. I don't know. My boss Barney gives me orders, and that's all. Well, just bear in mind, Steve, that the lady in that house and everything under that roof is under my protection. Don't you forget it. All right, Master Holmes, I'll remember. I've got him thoroughly frightened for his own skin, Watson, Holmes remarked as we walked on. I think he would double-cross his employer if he knew who he was. It was lucky I had some knowledge of the Spencer John crowd, and that Steve was one of them. Now, Watson... This is a case for Langdale Pike, and I am going to see him now. When I get back, I may be clearer in the matter. I saw no more of Holmes during the day, but I could well imagine how he spent it, for Langdale Pike was his human book of reference upon all matters of social scandal. This strange, languid creature spent his waking hours in the bow window of a St. James's Street club and was the receiving station, as well as the transmitter, for all the gossip of the metropolis. 
he made it was said a four-figure income by the paragraphs which he contributed every week to the garbage papers which cater for an inquisitive public if ever far down in the turbid depths of london life there was some strange swirl or eddy it was marked with automatic exactness by this human dial upon the surface holmes discreetly helped langdale to knowledge and on occasion was helped in turn when i met my friend in his room early next morning i was conscious from his bearing that all was well but none the less a most unpleasant surprise was awaiting us it took the shape of the following telegram please come out at once client's house burgled in the night police in possession sutro holmes whistled the drama has come to a crisis and quicker than i had expected there is a great driving power at the back of this business watson which does not surprise me after what i have heard this sutro of course is her lawyer i made a mistake i fear in not asking you to spend the night on guard this fellow has clearly proved a broken reed well there is nothing for it but another journey to harrow weald we found the three gables a very different establishment to the orderly household of the previous day a small group of idlers had assembled at the garden gate while a couple of constables were examining the windows and the geranium beds within we met a grey old gentleman who introduced himself as the lawyer together with a bustling rubicund inspector who greeted holmes as an old friend well mr holmes no chance for you in this case i'm afraid just a common ordinary burglary and well within the capacity of the poor old police no experts need apply i am sure the case is in very good hands said holmes merely a common burglary you say quite so we know pretty well who the men are and where to find them it is that gang of barney stockdale with a big nigger in it they've been seen about here excellent what did they get well they don't seem to have got much mrs maberly was chloroformed and the house was ah here is the lady herself our friend of yesterday looking very pale and ill had entered the room leaning upon a little maid-servant you gave me good advice mr holmes said she smiling ruefully alas i did not take it i did not wish to trouble mr sutro and so i was unprotected i only heard of it this morning the lawyer explained mr holmes advised me to have some friend in the house i neglected his advice and i have paid for it you look wretchedly ill said holmes perhaps you are hardly equal to telling me what occurred it is all here said the inspector tapping a bulky notebook still if the lady is not too exhausted there is really so little to tell i have no doubt that wicked susan had planned an entrance for them they must have known the house to an inch i was conscious for a moment of the chloroform rag which was thrust over my mouth but i have no notion how long i may have been senseless when i woke one man was at the bedside and another was rising with a bundle in his hand from among my son's baggage which was partially opened and littered over the floor before he could get away i sprang up and seized him you took a big risk said the inspector i clung to him but he shook me off and the other may have struck me for i can remember no more mary the maid heard the noise and began screaming out of the window that brought the police but the rascals had got away what did they take well i don't think there is anything of value missing 
I am sure there was nothing in my son's trunks. Did the men leave no clue? There was one sheet of paper which I may have torn from the man that I grasped. It was lying all crumpled on the floor. It is in my son's handwriting. Which means that it is not of much use, said the inspector. Now, if it had been in the burglars— Exactly, said Holmes. What rugged common sense. Nonetheless, I should be curious to see it. The inspector drew a folded sheet of foolscap from his pocket-book. "'I never pass anything, however trifling,' said he, with some pomposity. "'That is my advice to you, Mr. Holmes. In twenty-five years' experience I have learned my lesson. There is always the chance of finger-marks or something.' Holmes inspected the sheet of paper. "'What do you make of it, Inspector?' "'Seems to be the end of some queer novel, so far as I can see.' "'It may certainly prove to be the end of a queer tale,' said Holmes. "'You have noticed the number on the top of the page. "'It is two hundred and forty-five. "'Where are the two hundred and forty-four pages?' "'Well, I suppose the burglars got those. "'Much good may it do them.' "'It seems a queer thing to break into a house "'in order to steal such papers as that. "'Does it suggest anything to you, Inspector?' "'Yes, sir, it suggests that in their hurry the rascals just grabbed what first came to hand. "'I wish them joy of what they got.' "'Why should they go to my son's things?' asked Mrs. Maberly. "'Well, they found nothing valuable downstairs, so they tried their luck upstairs. "'That is how I read it. "'What do you make of it, Mr. Holmes?' "'I must think it over, Inspector. "'Come to the window, Watson.' Then, as we stood together, he read over the fragment of paper. It began in the middle of a sentence and ran like this. Face bled considerably from the cuts and blows, but it was nothing to the bleeding of his heart, as he saw that lovely face, the face for which he had been prepared to sacrifice his very life, looking out at his agony and humiliation. She smiled, yes, by heaven she smiled, like the heartless fiend she was, as he looked up at her. It was at that moment that love died, and hate was born. Man must live for something. If it is not for your embrace, my lady, then it shall surely be for your undoing and my complete revenge. "'Queer grammar,' said Holmes, with a smile, as he handed the paper back to the inspector. "'Did you notice how the he suddenly changed to my?' The writer was so carried away by his own story— that he imagined himself at the supreme moment to be the hero. "'It seemed mighty poor stuff,' said the inspector, as he replaced it in his book. "'What? Are you off, Mr. Holmes?' "'I don't think there is anything more for me to do, now that the case is in such capable hands. By the way, Mrs. Maberly, did you say you wished to travel?' "'It has always been my dream, Mr. Holmes. Where would you like to go? Cairo, Madeira, the Riviera?' "'Oh, if I had the money, I would go round the world.' "'Quite so, round the world. "'Well, good morning. I may drop you a line in the evening.' As we passed the window, I caught a glimpse of the inspector's smile and shake of the head. "'These clever fellows have always a touch of madness.' "'That was what I read in the inspector's smile.' "'Now, Watson, we are at the last lap of our little journey,' said Holmes.' when we were back in the roar of central London once more. I think we had best clear the matter up at once. 
and it would be well that you should come with me for it is safer to have a witness when you are dealing with such a lady as isadora klein we had taken a cab and were speeding to some address in grosvenor square holmes had been sunk in thought but he roused himself suddenly by the way watson i suppose you see it all clearly no i can't say that i do i only gather that we are going to see the lady who is behind all this mischief exactly but does the name isadora klein convey nothing to you she was of course the celebrated beauty there was never a woman to touch her she is pure spanish the real blood of the masterful conquistadors and her people have been leaders in pernambuco for generations she married the aged german sugar-king klein and presently found herself the richest as well as the most lovely widow upon earth then there was an interval of adventure when she pleased her own tastes she had several lovers and douglas maberly one of the most striking men in london was one of them it was by all accounts more than an adventure with him he was not a social butterfly but a strong proud man who gave and expected all but she is the belle dame sans merci of fiction when her caprice is satisfied the matter is ended and if the other party in the matter can't take her word for it she knows how to bring it home to him then that was his own story ah you are piecing it together now i hear that she is about to marry the young duke of lomond who might almost be her son his grace's ma might overlook the age but a big scandal would be a different matter so it is imperative ah here we are it was one of the finest corner houses at the west end a machine-like footman took up our cards and returned with word that the lady was not at home then we shall wait until she is said holmes cheerfully the machine broke down not at home means not at home to you said the footman good holmes answered that means that we shall not have to wait kindly give this note to your mistress he scribbled three or four words upon a sheet of his notebook folded it and handed it to the man what did you say holmes i asked i simply wrote shall it be the police then i think that should pass us in it did with amazing celerity a minute later we were in an arabian night's drawing-room vast and wonderful in a half gloom picked out with an occasional pink electric light the lady had come i felt to that time of life when even the proudest beauty finds the half-light more welcome she rose from a settee as we entered tall queenly a perfect figure a lovely mask-like face with two wonderful spanish eyes which looked murder at us both what is this intrusion and this insulting message she asked holding up the slip of paper i need not explain madame i have too much respect for your intelligence to do so though i confess that intelligence has been surprisingly at fault of late how so sir by supposing that your hired bullies could frighten me from my work surely no man would take up my profession if it were not that danger attracts him it was you then who forced me to examine the case of young maberly i have no idea what you are talking about what have i to do with hired bullies holmes turned away wearily yes i have underrated your intelligence well good afternoon stop where are you going to scotland yard 
We had not got half-way to the door before she had overtaken us and was holding his arm. She had turned in a moment from steel to velvet. "'Come and sit down, gentlemen. Let us talk this matter over. I feel that I may be frank with you, Mr. Holmes. You have the feelings of a gentleman. How quick a woman's instinct is to find it out. I will treat you as a friend.' I cannot promise to reciprocate, madame. I am not the law, but I represent justice, so far as my feeble powers go. I am ready to listen, and then I will tell you how I will act. No doubt it was foolish of me to threaten a brave man like yourself. What was really foolish, madame, is that you have placed yourself in the power of a band of rascals who may blackmail or give you away. No, no, I am not so simple. Since I have promised to be frank, I may say that no one save Barney Stockdale and Susan, his wife, have the least idea who their employer is. As to them, well, it is not the first. She smiled and nodded with a charming, coquettish intimacy. I see. You've tested them before. They are good hounds who run silent. Such hounds have a way, sooner or later, of biting the hand that feeds them. They will be arrested for this burglary. The police are already after them. They will take what comes to them. That is what they are paid for. I shall not appear in the matter. Unless I bring you into it. No, no, you would not. You are a gentleman. It is a woman's secret. In the first place, you must give back this manuscript. She broke into a ripple of laughter and walked to the fireplace, there was a calcined mass which she broke up with the poker. "'Shall I give this back?' she asked. So roguish and exquisite did she look, as she stood before us with a challenging smile, that I felt, of all Holmes's criminals, this was the one whom he would find it hardest to face. However, he was immune from sentiment. "'That seals your fate,' he said coldly. "'You are very prompt in your actions, madame.' "'But you have overdone it on this occasion.' "'She threw the poker down with a clatter. "'How hard you are!' she cried. "'May I tell you the whole story?' "'I fancy I could tell it to you. "'But you must look at it with my eyes, Mr. Holmes. "'You must realize it from the point of view "'of a woman who sees all her life's ambition "'about to be ruined at the last moment. "'Is such a woman to be blamed if she protects herself?' The original sin was yours. Yes, yes, I admit it. He was a dear boy, Douglas, but it so chanced that he could not fit into my plans. He wanted marriage, marriage, Mr. Holmes, with a penniless commoner. Nothing less would serve him. Then he became pertinacious. Because I had given, he seemed to think that I still must give, and to him only it was intolerable. At last I had to make him realize it, by hiring ruffians to beat him under your own window. You do indeed seem to know everything. Well, it is true. Barney and the boys drove him away, and were, I admit, a little rough in doing so. But what did he do then? Could I have believed that a gentleman would do such an act? He wrote a book in which he described his own story— I, of course, was the wolf, he the lamb. It was all there, under different names, of course. But who in all London would have failed to recognize it? What do you say to that, Mr. Holmes? Well, he was within his rights. 
It was as if the air of Italy had got into his blood and brought with it the old cruel Italian spirit. He wrote to me and sent me a copy of his book that I might have the torture of anticipation. There were two copies, he said, one for me, one for his publisher. How did you know the publishers had not reached him? I knew who his publisher was. It is not his only novel, you know. I found out that he had not heard from Italy. Then came Douglas's sudden death. So long as that other manuscript was in the world, there was no safety for me. Of course, it must be among his effects, and these would be returned to his mother. I set the gang at work. One of them got into the house as servant. I wanted to do the thing honestly. I really and truly did. I was ready to buy the house and everything in it. I offered any price she cared to ask. I only tried the other way when everything else had failed. Now, Mr. Holmes, granting that I was too hard on Douglas, and God knows I am sorry for it, what else could I do with my whole future at stake? Sherlock Holmes shrugged his shoulders. "'Well, well,' said he, "'I suppose I shall have to compound a felony as usual. "'How much does it cost to go round the world in first-class style?' "'The lady stared in amazement. "'Could it be done on five thousand pounds?' "'Well, I should think so, indeed.' "'Very good. "'I think you will sign me a cheque for that, "'and I will see that it comes to Mrs. Maberly. "'You owe her a little change of air. "'Meantime, lady,' He wagged a cautionary forefinger. Have a care. Have a care. You can't play with edged tools forever without cutting those dainty hands. End of the Three Gables Section 5 of The Case Book of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland. Story five The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire. Holmes had read carefully a note which the last post had brought him. Then, with the dry chuckle which was his nearest approach to a laugh, he tossed it over to me. For a mixture of the modern and the medieval, of the practical and the wildly fanciful, I think this is surely the limit, said he. What do you make of it, Watson? I read as follows. 46, Old Jewry, November 19th. Ray, Vampires. Sir, our client, Mr. Robert Ferguson of Ferguson and Muirhead, tea brokers of Mincing Lane, has made some inquiry from us in a communication of even date concerning vampires. As our firm specializes entirely upon the assessment of machinery, the matter hardly comes within our purview, and we have therefore recommended Mr. Ferguson to call upon you and lay the matter before you. We have not forgotten your successful action in the case of Matilda Briggs. We are, sir, faithfully yours, Morrison, Morrison, and Dodd, per E.J.C. Uh, Matilda Briggs was not the name of a young woman, Watson, said Holmes, in a reminiscent voice. It was a ship which is associated with the giant rat of Sumatra, a story for which the world is not yet prepared. But what do we know about vampires? Does it come within our purview, either? Anything is better than stagnation, but really we seem to have been switched on to a Grimm's fairy tale. Make a long arm, Watson, and see what V has to say. 
I leaned back and took down the great index volume to which he referred. Holmes balanced it on his knee, and his eyes moved slowly and lovingly over the record of old cases mixed with the accumulated information of a lifetime. "'Voyage of the Glorious Scott,' he read. "'That was a bad business. I have some recollection that you made a record of it, Watson, though I was unable to congratulate you upon the result. Victor Lynch, the forger. Venomous lizard or Gila. Remarkable case, that.' Victoria, the circus bell, Vanderbilt and the Yeggman, Vipers, Vigor, the Hammersmith Wonder. Hello, hello, good old index, you can't beat it. Listen to this, Watson. Vampirism in Hungary, and again, Vampires in Transylvania. He turned over the pages with eagerness, but after a short intent perusal, he threw down the great book with a snarl of disappointment. "'Rubbish, Watson, rubbish! "'What have we to do with walking corpses "'who can only be held in their grave "'by stakes driven through their hearts? "'It's pure lunacy.' "'But surely,' said I, "'the vampire was not necessarily a dead man. "'A living person might have the habit. "'I have read, for example, of the old "'sucking the blood of the young "'in order to retain their youth. "'You are right, Watson. "'It mentions the legend in one of these references.' But are we to give serious attention to such things? This agency stands flat-footed upon the ground, and there it must be rain. The world is big enough for us. No ghosts need apply. I fear that we cannot take Mr. Robert Ferguson very seriously. Possibly this note may be from him, and may throw some light upon what is worrying him. He took up a second letter, which had lain unnoticed upon the table, whilst he had been absorbed with the first. This he began to read with a smile of amusement upon his face, which gradually faded away into an expression of intense interest and concentration. When he had finished, he sat for some little time lost in thought, with the letter dangling from his fingers. Finally, with a start, he aroused himself from his reverie. Cheeseman's Lamberley! "'Where is Lamberley, Watson? "'It is in Sussex, south of Horsham. "'Not very far, eh? "'And Cheeseman's?' "'I know that country, Holmes. "'It is full of old houses "'which are named after the men "'who built them centuries ago. "'You get Audleys and Harveys and Carrotons. "'The folk are forgotten, "'but their names live in their houses.' "'Precisely,' said Holmes coldly. It was one of the peculiarities of his proud, self-contained nature that though he docketed any fresh information very quickly and accurately in his brain, he seldom made any acknowledgment to the giver. I rather fancy we shall know a good deal more about Cheeseman's Lamberley before we are through. The letter is, as I had hoped, from Robert Ferguson. By the way, he claims acquaintance with you. With me? You had better read it. He handed the letter across. It was headed with the address quoted. Dear Mr. Holmes, it said, I have been recommended to you by my lawyers, but indeed the matter is so extraordinarily delicate that it is most difficult to discuss. It concerns a friend for whom I am acting. This gentleman married some five years ago a Peruvian lady, the daughter of a Peruvian merchant, whom he had met in connection with the importation of nitrates. The lady was very beautiful, 
but the fact of her foreign birth and of her alien religion always caused a separation of interests and of feelings between husband and wife so that after a time his love may have cooled towards her and he may have come to regard their union as a mistake he felt there were sides of her character which he could never explore or understand this was the more painful as she was as loving a wife as a man could have to all appearance absolutely devoted now for the point which i will make more plain when we meet indeed this note is merely to give you a general idea of the situation and to ascertain whether you would care to interest yourself in the matter the lady began to show some curious traits quite alien to her ordinarily sweet and gentle disposition the gentleman had been married twice and he had one son by the first wife this boy was now fifteen a very charming and affectionate youth though unhappily injured through an accident in childhood twice the wife was caught in the act of assaulting this poor lad in the most unprovoked way once she struck him with a stick and left a great wheel on his arm this was a small matter however compared with her conduct to her own child a dear boy just under one year of age on one occasion about a month ago the child had been left by its nurse for a few minutes a loud cry from the baby as of pain called the nurse back as she ran into the room she saw her employer the lady leaning over the baby and apparently biting his neck there was a small wound in the neck from which a stream of blood had escaped the nurse was so horrified that she wished to call the husband but the lady implored her not to do so and actually gave her five pounds as a price for her silence no explanation was ever given and for the moment the matter was passed over it left however a terrible impression upon the nurse's mind and from that time she began to watch her mistress closely and to keep a closer guard upon the baby whom she tenderly loved it seemed to her that even as she watched the mother so the mother watched her and that every time she was compelled to leave the baby alone the mother was waiting to get at it day and night the nurse covered the child and day and night the silent watchful mother seemed to be lying in wait as a wolf waits for a lamb it must read most incredible to you and yet i beg you to take it seriously for a child's life and a man's sanity may depend upon it at last there came one dreadful day when the facts could no longer be concealed from the husband the nurse's nerve had given way she could stand the strain no longer and she made a clean breast of it all to the man to him it seemed as wild a tale as it may now seem to you he knew his wife to be a loving wife and save for the assaults upon her stepson a loving mother why then should she wound her own dear little baby he told the nurse that she was dreaming that her suspicions were those of a lunatic and that such libels upon her mistress were not to be tolerated whilst they were talking a sudden cry of pain was heard nurse and master rushed together to the nursery imagine his feelings mr holmes as he saw his wife rise from a kneeling position beside the cot and saw blood upon the child's exposed neck and upon the sheet with a cry of horror he turned his wife's face to the light and saw blood all round her lips it was she she beyond all question who had drunk the poor baby's blood so the matter stands she is now confined to her room there has been no explanation the husband is half demented he knows and i know little of vampirism beyond the name 
we had thought it was some wild tale of foreign parts and yet here in the very heart of the english sussex well all this can be discussed with you in the morning will you see me will you use your great powers in aiding a distracted man if so kindly wire to ferguson cheeseman's lamberley and i will be at your rooms by ten o'clock yours faithfully robert ferguson p s i believe your friend watson played rugby for blackheath when i was three-quarter for richmond it is the only personal introduction which i can give of course i remember him said i as i laid down the letter big bob ferguson the finest three-quarter richmond ever had he was always a good-natured chap it's like him to be so concerned over a friend's case holmes looked at me thoughtfully and shook his head i never get your limits watson said he there are unexplored possibilities about you take a wire down like a good fellow we'll examine your case with pleasure your case we must not let him think that this agency is a home for the weak-minded of course it is his case send him that wire and let the matter rest till morning promptly at ten o'clock next morning ferguson strode into our room i had remembered him as a long slab-sided man with loose limbs and a fine turn of speed which had carried him round many an opposing back there is surely nothing in life more painful than to meet the wreck of a fine athlete whom one has known in his prime his great frame had fallen in his flaxen hair was scanty and his shoulders were bowed i fear that i roused corresponding emotions in him hullo watson said he and his voice was still deep and hearty you don't look quite the man you did when i threw you over the ropes into the crowd at the old deer park i expect i've changed a bit also but it's this last day or two that has aged me i see by your telegram mr holmes that it is no use my pretending to be anyone's deputy it is simpler to deal direct said holmes of course it is but you can imagine how difficult it is when you are speaking of the one woman whom you are bound to protect and help what can i do how am i to go to the police with such a story and yet the kiddies have got to be protected is it madness mr holmes is it something in the blood have you any similar case in your experience for god's sake give me some advice for i am at my wit's end very naturally mr ferguson now sit here and pull yourself together and give me a few clear answers i can assure you that i am very far from being at my wit's end and that i am confident we shall find some solution first of all tell me what steps you have taken is your wife still near the children we had a dreadful scene she is a most loving woman mr holmes if ever a woman loved a man with all her heart and soul she loves me she was cut to the heart that i should have discovered this horrible this incredible secret she would not even speak she gave no answer to my reproaches save to gaze at me with a sort of wild despairing look in her eyes then she rushed to her room and locked herself in since then she has refused to see me she has a maid who was with her before her marriage dolores by name a friend rather than a servant she takes her food to her then the child is in no immediate danger mrs mason the nurse has sworn that she will not leave it night or day i can absolutely trust her i am more uneasy about poor little jack for as i told you in my note he has twice been assaulted by her but never wounded 
no she struck him savagely it is the more terrible as he is a poor little inoffensive cripple ferguson's gaunt features softened as he spoke of his boy you would think that the dear lad's condition would soften anyone's heart a fall in childhood and a twisted spine mr holmes but the dearest most loving heart within holmes had picked up the letter of yesterday and was reading it over what other inmates are there in your house mr ferguson two servants who have not been long with us one stable hand michael who sleeps in the house my wife myself my boy jack baby dolores and mrs mason that is all i gather that you did not know your wife well at the time of your marriage i had only known her a few weeks how long had this maid dolores been with her some years then your wife's character would really be better known by dolores than by you yes you may say so holmes made a note i fancy said he that i may be of more use at lamberley than here it is eminently a case for personal investigation if the lady remains in her room our presence could not annoy or inconvenience her of course we would stay at the inn ferguson gave a gesture of relief it is what i hoped mr holmes there is an excellent train too from victoria if you could come of course we could come there is a lull at present i can give you my undivided energies watson of course comes with us but there are one or two points upon which i wish to be very sure before i start this unhappy lady as i understand it has appeared to assault both the children her own baby and your little son that is so but the attacks take different forms do they not she has beaten her son once with a stick and once very savagely with her hands did she give no explanation why she struck him none save that she hated him again and again she said so well that is not unknown among stepmothers a posthumous jealousy we will say is the lady jealous by nature yes she is very jealous jealous with all the strength of her fiery tropical love but the boy he is fifteen i understand and probably very developed in mind since his body has been circumscribed in action did he give you no explanation of these assaults no he declared there was no reason were they good friends at other times no there was never any love between them yet you say he is affectionate never in the world could there be so devoted a son my life is his life he is absorbed in what i say or do once again holmes made a note for some time he sat lost in thought no doubt you and the boy were great comrades before this second marriage you were thrown very close together were you not very much so and the boy having so affectionate a nature was devoted no doubt to the memory of his mother most devoted he would certainly seem to be a most interesting lad there is one other point about these assaults were the strange attacks upon the baby and the assaults upon your son at the same period in the first case it was so it was as if some frenzy had seized her and she had vented her rage upon both in the second case it was only jack who suffered mrs mason had no complaint to make about the baby that certainly complicates matters i don't quite follow you mr holmes possibly not 
one forms provisional theories and waits for time or fuller knowledge to explode them a bad habit mr ferguson but human nature is weak i fear that your old friend here has given an exaggerated view of my scientific methods however i will only say at the present stage that your problem does not appear to me to be insoluble and that you may expect to find us at victoria at two o'clock it was evening of a dull foggy november day when having left our bags at the chequers lamberley we drove through the sussex clay of a long winding drive and finally reached the isolated and ancient farmhouse in which ferguson dwelt it was a large straggling building very old in the centre very new at the wings with towering tudor chimneys and a lichen-spotted high-pitched roof of horsham slabs the doorsteps were worn into curves and the ancient tiles which lined the porch were marked with the rebus of a cheese and a man after the original builder within the ceilings were corrugated with heavy oaken beams and the uneven floors sagged into sharp curves an odour of age and decay pervaded the whole crumbling building there was one very large central room into which ferguson led us here in a huge old-fashioned fireplace with an iron screen behind it dated sixteen seventy there blazed and spluttered a splendid log fire the room as i gazed round was a most singular mixture of dates and of places the half-panelled walls may well have belonged to the original yeoman farmer of the seventeenth century they were ornamented however on the lower part by a line of well-chosen modern water-colours while above where yellow plaster took the place of oak there was hung a fine collection of south american utensils and weapons which had been brought no doubt by the peruvian lady upstairs holmes rose with that quick curiosity which sprang from his eager mind and examined them with some care he returned with his eyes full of thought hello he cried hello a spaniel had lain in a basket in the corner it came slowly forwards towards its master walking with difficulty its hind legs moved irregularly and its tail was on the ground it licked ferguson's hand what is it mr holmes the dog what's the matter with it that's what puzzled the vet a sort of paralysis spinal meningitis he thought but it is passing he'll be all right soon won't you carlo a shiver of assent passed through the drooping tail the dog's mournful eyes passed from one of us to the other he knew that we were discussing his case did it come on suddenly in a single night how long ago it may have been four months ago very remarkable very suggestive what do you see in it mr holmes a confirmation of what i had already thought for god's sake what do you think mr holmes it may be a mere intellectual puzzle to you but it is life and death to me my wife a would-be murderer my child in constant danger don't play with me mr holmes it is too terribly serious the big rugby three-quarter was trembling all over holmes put his hand soothingly upon his arm i fear that there is pain for you mr ferguson whatever the solution may be said he i would spare you all i can i cannot say more for the instant but before i leave this house i hope i may have something definite please god you may if you will excuse me gentlemen i will go up to my wife's room and see if there has been any change he was away some minutes 
during which Holmes resumed his examination of the curiosities upon the wall. When our host returned, it was clear from his downcast face that he had made no progress. He brought with him a tall, slim, brown-faced girl. "'The tea is ready, Dolores,' said Ferguson. "'See that your mistress has everything she can wish.' "'She very ill,' cried the girl, looking with indignant eyes at her master. "'She no ask for food. She very ill. She need doctor. I frightened stay alone with her without doctor.' Ferguson looked at me with a question in his eyes. "'I should be so glad if I could be of use. Would your mistress see Dr. Watson?' "'I take him. I no ask leave. She needs doctor. Then I'll come with you at once.' I followed the girl, who was quivering with strong emotion, up the staircase and down an ancient corridor. At the end was an iron-clamped and massive door. It struck me as I looked at it that if Ferguson tried to force his way to his wife he would find it no easy matter. The girl drew a key from her pocket, and the heavy oaken planks creaked upon their old hinges. I passed in, and she swiftly followed, fastening the door behind her. On the bed... A woman was lying who was clearly in a high fever. She was only half-conscious, but as I entered she raised a pair of frightened but beautiful eyes and glared at me in apprehension. Seeing a stranger, she appeared to be relieved and sank back with a sigh upon the pillow. I stepped up to her with a few reassuring words, and she lay still while I took her pulse and temperature. Both were high and yet my impression was that the condition was rather that of mental and nervous excitement than of any actual seizure. "'She lie like that one day, two day. I afraid she die,' said the girl. The woman turned her flushed and handsome face towards me. "'Where is my husband?' "'He is below, and would wish to see you.' "'I will not see him. I will not see him.' Then she seemed to wander off into delirium. "'A fiend! A fiend! Oh!' "'What shall I do with this devil?' "'Can I help you in any way?' "'No, no one can help. It is finished. All is destroyed. Do what I will, all is destroyed.' "'The woman must have some strange delusion. I could not see Bob Ferguson in the character of fiend or devil.' "'Madame,' I said, "'your husband loves you dearly. He is deeply grieved at this happening.' Again she turned on me those glorious eyes. He loves me, yes, but do I not love him? Do I not love him even to sacrifice myself rather than break his dear heart? That is how I love him. And yet he could think of me. He could speak of me so. He is full of grief, but he cannot understand. No, he cannot understand, but he should trust. Will you not see him? I suggested. No, no, I cannot forget those terrible words, the look upon his face. I will not see him. Go now, you can do nothing for me. Tell him only one thing. I want my child. I have a right to my child. That is the only message I can send him. She turned her face to the wall and would say no more. I returned to the room downstairs, where Ferguson and Holmes still sat by the fire. Ferguson listened moodily to my account of the interview. "'How can I send her the child?' he said. "'How do I know what strange impulse might come upon her? "'How can I ever forget how she rose from beside it "'with its blood upon her lips?' "'He shuddered at the recollection. "'The child is safe with Mrs. Mason, and there he must remain.' 
A smart maid, the only modern thing which we had seen in the house, had brought in some tea. As she was serving it, the door opened and a youth entered the room. He was a remarkable lad, pale-faced and fair-haired, with excitable light-blue eyes which blazed into a sudden flame of emotion and joy as they rested upon his father. He rushed forward and threw his arms round his neck with the abandon of a loving girl. "'Oh, Daddy,' he cried, "'I did not know that you were due yet. I should have been here to meet you. Oh, I am so glad to see you.' Ferguson gently disengaged himself from the embrace with some little show of embarrassment. "'Dear old chap,' said he, patting the flaxen head with a very tender hand, "'I came early because my friends, Mr. Holmes and Dr. Watson, have been persuaded to come down and spend an evening with us.' "'Is that Mr. Holmes, the detective?' "'Yes.' The youth looked at us with a very penetrating, and as it seemed to me, unfriendly gaze. "'What about your other child, Mr. Ferguson?' asked Holmes. "'Might we make the acquaintance of the baby?' "'Ask Mrs. Mason to bring baby down,' said Ferguson. The boy went off with a curious, shambling gait which told my surgical eyes that he was suffering from a weak spine. Presently he returned, and behind him came a tall, gaunt woman bearing in her arms a very beautiful child, dark-eyed, golden-haired, a wonderful mixture of the Saxon and the Latin. Ferguson was evidently devoted to it, for he took it into his arms and fondled it most tenderly. "'Fancy anyone having the heart to hurt him,' he muttered, as he glanced down at the small, angry red pucker upon the cherub throat. It was at this moment that I chanced to glance at Holmes, and saw a most singular intentness in his expression. His face was as set as if it had been carved out of old ivory and his eyes, which had glanced for a moment at father and child, were now fixed with eager curiosity upon something at the other side of the room. Following his gaze, I could only guess that he was looking out through the window at the melancholy dripping garden. It is true that a shutter had half-closed outside and obstructed the view, but nonetheless it was certainly at the window that Holmes was fixing his concentrated attention. Then he smiled and his eyes came back to the baby. On its chubby neck there was this small, puckered mark. Without speaking, Holmes examined it with care. Finally he shook one of the dimpled fists which waved in front of him. "'Good-bye, little man. You have made a strange start in life. Nurse, I should wish to have a word with you in private.' He took her aside and spoke earnestly for a few minutes. I only heard the last words, which were— your anxiety will soon, I hope, be set at rest. The woman, who seemed to be a sour, silent kind of creature, withdrew with the child. "'What is Mrs. Mason like?' asked Holmes. "'Not very prepossessing externally, as you can see, but a heart of gold and devoted to the child. "'Do you like her, Jack?' Holmes turned suddenly upon the boy. His expressive, mobile face shadowed over, and he shook his head. "'Jackie has very strong likes and dislikes,' said Ferguson, putting his arm round the boy. "'Luckily I am one of his likes.' The boy cooed and nestled his head upon his father's breast. Ferguson gently disengaged him. "'Run away, little Jackie,' said he, and he watched his son with loving eyes until he disappeared. "'Now, Mr. Holmes,' he continued, when the boy was gone, "'I really feel that I have brought you on a fool's errand.' "'for what can you possibly do save give me your sympathy? 
It must be an exceedingly delicate and complex affair from your point of view. It is certainly delicate, said my friend with an amused smile, but I have not been struck up till now with its complexity. It has been a case for intellectual deduction. But when this original intellectual deduction is confirmed point by point by quite a number of independent incidents, then the subjective becomes objective, and we can say confidently that we have reached our goal. I had in fact reached it before we left Baker Street, and the rest has merely been observation and confirmation. Ferguson put his big hand to his furrowed forehead. "'For heaven's sake, Holmes,' he said hoarsely, "'if you can see the truth in this matter, do not keep me in suspense. How do I stand? What shall I do?' I care nothing as to how you have found your facts so long as you have really got them. Certainly I owe you an explanation, and you shall have it. But you will permit me to handle the matter in my own way? Is the lady capable of seeing us, Watson? She is ill, but she is quite rational. Very good. It is only in her presence that we can clear the matter up. Let us go up to her. She will not see me, cried Ferguson. Oh, yes, she will said Holmes. He scribbled a few lines upon a sheet of paper. "'You, at least, have the entree, Watson. Will you have the goodness to give the lady this note?' I ascended again and handed the note to Dolores, who cautiously opened the door. A minute later I heard a cry from within, a cry in which joy and surprise seemed to be blended. Dolores looked out. "'She will see them. She will listen,' said she. At my summons, Ferguson and Holmes came up. As we entered the room, Ferguson took a step or two towards his wife, who had raised herself in the bed, but she held out her hand to repulse him. He sank into an armchair, while Holmes seated himself beside him, after bowing to the lady, who looked at him with wide-eyed amazement. "'I think we can dispense with Dolores,' said Holmes. "'Oh, very well, madame. If you would rather she stayed, I can see no objection.' Now, Mr. Ferguson, I am a busy man with many calls, and my methods have to be short and direct. The swiftest surgery is the least painful. Let me first say what will ease your mind. Your wife is a very good, a very loving, and a very ill-used woman. Ferguson sat up with a cry of joy. Prove that, Mr. Holmes, and I am your debtor for ever. I will do so, but in doing so I must wound you deeply in another direction. I care nothing so long as you clear my wife. Everything on earth is insignificant compared to that. Let me tell you, then, the train of reasoning which passed through my mind in Baker Street. The idea of a vampire was to me absurd. Such things do not happen in criminal practice in England. And yet your observation was precise. You had seen the lady rise from beside the child's cot with the blood upon her lips. I did. Did it not occur to you that a bleeding wound may be sucked for some other purpose than to draw the blood from it? Was there not a queen in English history who sucked such a wound to draw poison from it? Poison? A South American household. My instinct felt the presence of those weapons upon the wall before my eyes ever saw them. It might have been other poison, but that was what occurred to me. When I saw that little empty quiver beside the small bird-bow, it was just what I expected to see. If the child were pricked with one of those arrows dipped in curare or some other devilish drug, it would mean death if the venom were not sucked out. And the dog. If one were to use such a poison, 
would one not try it first in order to see that it had not lost its power i did not foresee the dog but at least i understood him and he fitted into my reconstruction now do you understand your wife feared such an attack she saw it made and saved the child's life and yet she shrank from telling you all the truth for she knew how you loved the boy and feared lest it break your heart jacky i watched him as you fondled the child just now his face was clearly reflected in the glass of the window where the shutter formed a background i saw such jealousy such cruel hatred as i have seldom seen in a human face my jacky you have to face it mr ferguson it is the more painful because it is a distorted love a maniacal exaggerated love for you and possibly for his dead mother which has prompted his action his very soul is consumed with hatred for this splendid child whose health and beauty are contrast to his own weakness good god it is incredible have i spoken the truth madame the lady was sobbing with her face buried in the pillows now she turned to her husband how could i tell you bob i felt the blow it would be to you it was better that i should wait and that it should come from some other lips than mine when this gentleman who seems to have powers of magic wrote that he knew all i was glad i think a year at sea would be my prescription for master jacky said holmes rising from his chair only one thing is still clouded madame we can quite understand your attacks upon master jacky there is a limit to a mother's patience but how did you dare to leave the child these last two days i had told mrs mason she knew exactly so i imagined ferguson was standing by the bed choking his hands outstretched and quivering this i fancy is the time for our exit watson said holmes in a whisper if you will take one elbow of the two faithful dolores i will take the other there now he added as he closed the door behind him i think we may leave them to settle the rest among themselves i have only one further note of this case it is the letter which holmes wrote in final answer to that with which the narrative begins it ran thus baker street november twenty first ray vampires sir referring to your letter of the nineteenth i beg to state that i have looked into the inquiry of your client mr robert ferguson of ferguson and weirhead tea brokers of mincing lane and that the matter has been brought to a satisfactory conclusion with thanks for your recommendation i am sir faithfully yours sherlock holmes end of the adventure of the sussex vampire Section six of the Case Book of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland. Story six The Adventure of the Three Gairdebs. It may have been a comedy, or it may have been a tragedy. It cost one man his reason, it cost me a bloodletting, and it cost yet another man the penalties of the law. Yet there was certainly an element of comedy well you shall judge for yourselves i remember the date very well for it was in the same month that holmes refused a knighthood for services which may perhaps some day be described 
I only refer to the matter in passing, for in my position of partner and confidant, I am obliged to be particularly careful to avoid any indiscretion. I repeat, however, that this enables me to fix the date, which was the latter end of June 1902, shortly after the conclusion of the South African War. Holmes had spent several days in bed, as was his habit from time to time, but he emerged that morning with a long foolscap document in his hand and a twinkle of amusement in his austere grey eyes. "'There is a chance for you to make some money, friend Watson,' said he. "'Have you ever heard the name of Garadeb?' I admitted that I had not. "'Well, if you can lay your hand upon a Garadeb, there's money in it.' "'Why?' "'Ah, that's a long story. Rather a whimsical one, too. I don't think in all our explorations of human complexities we have ever come upon anything more singular. The fellow will be here presently for cross-examination, so I won't open the matter up until he comes. But meanwhile, that's the name we want.' The telephone directory lay on the table beside me, and I turned over the pages in a rather hopeless quest. But to my amazement— there was this strange name in its due place. I gave a cry of triumph. Here you are, Holmes. Here it is. Holmes took the book from my hand. Gerdeb N., he read, 136 Little Ryder Street, W. Sorry to disappoint you, my dear Watson, but this is the man himself. That is the address upon his letter. We want another to match him. Mrs. Hudson had come in with a card upon a tray. I took it up and glanced at it. "'Why, here it is!' I cried in amazement. "'This is a different initial. John Garadeb, Counselor at Law, Moorville, Kansas, USA.' Holmes smiled as he looked at the card. "'I'm afraid you must make yet another effort, Watson,' said he. "'This gentleman is also in the plot already, though I certainly did not expect to see him this morning.' However, he is in a position to tell us a good deal, which I want to know. A moment later he was in the room. Mr. John Garadeb, counsellor at law, was a short, powerful man, with the round, fresh, clean-shaven face characteristic of so many American men of affairs. The general effect was chubby and rather childlike, so that one received the impression of quite a young man with a broad, set smile upon his face. His eyes, however, were arresting. Seldom in any human head have I seen a pair which bespoke a more intense inward life, so bright were they, so alert, so responsive to every change of thought. His accent was American, but was not accompanied by any eccentricity of speech. "'Mr. Holmes?' he asked, glancing from one to the other. "'Ah, yes, your pictures are not unlike you, sir, if I may say so.' "'I believe you have had a letter for my namesake, Mr. Nathan Garadeb, have you not?' "'Pray sit down,' said Sherlock Holmes. "'We shall, I fancy, have a good deal to discuss.' He took up his sheets of foolscap. "'You are, of course, the Mr. John Garadeb mentioned in this document, but surely you have been in England some time?' "'Why do you say that, Mr. Holmes? I seemed to read sudden suspicion in those expressive eyes.' "'Your whole outfit is English.' Mr. Garadeb forced a laugh. "'I've read of your tricks, Mr. Holmes, but I never thought I would be the subject of them. Where do you read that?' "'The shoulder-cut of your coat, the toes of your boots. Could anyone doubt it?' 
Well, well, I had no idea I was so obvious a Britisher. But business brought me over here some time ago, and so, as you say, my outfit is nearly all London. However, I guess your time is of value, and we did not meet to talk about the cut of my socks. What about getting down to that paper you hold in your hand? Holmes had in some way ruffled our visitor, whose chubby face had assumed a far less amiable expression. "'Patience, patience, Mr. Garadab,' said my friend in a soothing voice. "'Dr. Watson would tell you that these little digressions of mine sometimes prove in the end to have some bearing on the matter. But why did Mr. Nathan Garadab not come with you?' "'Why did he ever drag you into it at all?' asked our visitor with a sudden outflame of anger. "'What in thunder had you to do with it? "'Here was a bit of professional business between two gentlemen, "'and one of them must needs call in a detective. "'I saw him this morning, and he told me this fool trick he had played me, "'and that's why I am here. "'But I feel bad about it all the same.' "'There was no reflection upon you, Mr. Garadab. "'It was simply zeal upon his part to gain your end, "'an end which is, I understand, equally vital for both of you.' He knew that I had means of getting information, and therefore it was very natural that he should apply to me. Our visitor's angry face gradually cleared. "'Well, that puts it different,' said he. "'When I went to see him this morning, and he told me he had sent to a detective, I just asked for your address and came right away. I don't want police butting into a private matter.' "'But if you are content just to help us find the man, there can be no harm in that.' "'Well, that is just how it stands,' said Holmes. "'And now, sir, since you are here, we had best have a clear account from your own lips. My friend here knows nothing of the details.' Mr. Garadab surveyed me with not too friendly a gaze. "'Need he know?' he asked. "'We usually work together.' "'Well, there's no reason it should be kept a secret. "'I'll give you the facts as short as I can make them. "'If you came from Kansas, "'I would not need to explain to you "'who Alexander Hamilton Garadab was. "'He made his money in real estate "'and afterwards in the wheat pit at Chicago, "'but he spent it in buying up as much land "'as would make one of your countries, "'lying along the Arkansas River west of Fort Dodge.' It's grazing land, and lumber land, and arable land, and mineralized land, and just every sort of land that brings dollars to the man that owns it. He had no kith nor kin, or, if he had, I never heard of it, but he took a kind of pride in the queerness of his name. That was what brought us together. I was in the law at Topeka, and one day I had a visit from the old man, and he was tickled to death to meet another man with his own name. It was his pet fad, and he was dead set to find out if there were any more Garadabs in the world. "'Find me another!' said he. I told him I was a busy man and could not spend my life hiking round the world in search of Garadabs. "'Nonetheless,' said he, "'that is just what you will do if things pan out as I planned them.' I thought he was joking, but there was a powerful lot of meaning in the words, as I was soon to discover." for he died within a year of saying them, and he left a will behind him. It was the queerest will that has ever been filed in the state of Kansas. His property was divided into three parts, and I was to have one on condition that I found two Garadabs who would share the remainder. It's five million dollars for each if it is a cent, but we can't lay a finger on it 
until we all three stand in a row. It was so big a chance that I just let my legal practice slide, and I set forth looking for Gardebs. There is not one in the United States. I went through it, sir, with a fine-toothed comb, and never a Garadeb could I catch. Then I tried the old country. Sure enough, there was the name in the London telephone directory. I went after him two days ago and explained the whole matter to him. But he is a lone man, like myself, with some women relations, but no men. It says three adult men in the will. So, you see, we still have a vacancy, and if you can help to fill it, we will be very ready to pay your charges. Well, Watson, said Holmes, with a smile, I said it was rather whimsical, did I not? I should have thought, sir, that your obvious way was to advertise in the agony columns of the papers. I have done that, Mr. Holmes. No replies. Dear me. Well, it is certainly a most curious little problem. I may take a glance at it in my leisure. By the way, it is curious that you should have come from Topeka. I used to have a correspondent, he is dead now, old Lysander Starr, who was mayor in 1890. Good old Starr, said our visitor. His name is still honored. Well, Mr. Holmes, I suppose all we can do is to report to you and let you know how we progress. I reckon you will hear within a day or two. With this assurance, our American bowed and departed. Holmes had lit his pipe, and he sat for some time with a curious smile upon his face. "'Well?' I asked at last. "'I'm wondering, Watson, just wondering.' "'At what?' Holmes took his pipe from his lips. "'I was wondering, Watson, what on earth could be the object of this man in telling us such a rigmarole of lies? I nearly asked him so, for there are times when a brutal frontal attack is the best policy.' but I judged it better to let him think he had fooled us. Here is a man with an English coat frayed at the elbow and trousers bagged at the knee, with a year's wear, and yet by this document and by his own account he is a provincial American lately landed in London. There have been no advertisements in the agony columns. You know that I miss nothing there. They are my favorite covert for putting up a bird, and I would never have overlooked such a cock-pheasant as that. I never knew a Dr. Lysander Starr of Topeka. Touch him where you would, he is false. I think the fellow is really an American, but he has worn his accent smooth with years of London. What is his game, then, and what motive lies behind this preposterous search for Garadebs? It's worth our attention, for granting that the man is a rascal, he is certainly a complex and ingenious one. We must now find out if our other correspondent is a fraud also. Just ring him up, Watson. I did so, and heard a thin, quavering voice at the other end of the line. Yes, yes, I am, Mr. Nathan Garadeb. Is Mr. Holmes there? I should very much like to have a word with Mr. Holmes. My friend took the instrument, and I heard the usual syncopated dialogue. Yes, he has been here. I understand that you don't know him. How long? Only two days. Yes, yes, of course. It is a most captivating prospect. Will you be at home this evening? I suppose your namesake will not be there? Very good. We will come then, for I would rather have a chat without him. Dr. Watson will come with me. I understood from your note that you did not go out often. 
Well, we shall be round about six. You need not mention it to the American lawyer. Very good. Goodbye. It was twilight of a lovely spring evening, and even Little Ryder Street, one of the smaller offshoots from the Edgware Road, within a stone cast of old Tyburn Tree of evil memory, looked golden and wonderful in the slanting rays of the setting sun. The particular house to which we were directed was a large, old-fashioned, early Georgian edifice with a flat brick face, broken only by two deep bay windows on the ground floor. It was on this ground floor that our client lived, and, indeed, the low windows proved to be the front of the huge room in which he spent his waking hours. Holmes pointed, as we passed, to the small brass plate which bore the curious name. "'Up some years, Watson,' he remarked indicating its discoloured surface. It's his real name, anyhow, and that is something to note. The house had a common stare, and there were a number of names painted in the hall, some indicating offices and some private chambers. It was not a collection of residential flats, but rather the abode of bohemian bachelors. Our client opened the door for us himself, and apologised by saying that the woman in charge left at four o'clock. Mr. Nathan Garadeb proved to be a very tall, loose-jointed, round-backed person, gaunt and bald, some sixty-odd years of age. He had a cadaverous face, with the dull, dead skin of a man to whom exercise was unknown. Large, round spectacles and a small, projecting goat's beard combined with his stooping attitude to give him an expression of peering curiosity. The general effect, however, was amiable, though eccentric. The room was as curious as its occupant. It looked like a small museum. It was both broad and deep, with cupboards and cabinets all round, crowded with specimens, geological and anatomical. Cases of butterflies and moths flanked each side of the entrance. A large table in the centre was littered with all sorts of debris, while the tall brass tube of a powerful microscope bristled up amongst them. As I glanced round, I was surprised at the universality of the man's interests. Here was a case of ancient coins. There was a cabinet of flint instruments. Behind his central table was a large cupboard of fossil bones. Above was a line of plaster skulls with such names as Neanderthal, Heidelberg, Cromagnon, printed beneath them. It was clear that he was a student of many subjects. As he stood in front of us now, he held a piece of chamois leather in his right hand, with which he was polishing a coin. Syracusan of the best period, he explained, holding it up. They degenerated greatly towards the end. At their best, I hold them supreme, though some prefer the Alexandrian school. You will find a chair here, Mr. Holmes. Pray allow me to clear these bones. And you, sir, ah, yes, Dr. Watson, if you would have the goodness to put the Japanese face to one side. You see round me my little interests in life. My doctor lectures me about never going out, but why should I go out when I have so much to hold me here? I can assure you that the adequate cataloguing of one of these cabinets would take me three good months." Holmes looked round him with curiosity. "'But do you tell me you never go out?' he said. "'No, and again I drive down to Sotheby's or Christie's. Otherwise I very seldom leave my room. I am not too strong, 
and my researches are very absorbing. But you can imagine, Mr. Holmes, what a terrific shock. Pleasant, but terrific, it was for me when I heard of this unparalleled good fortune. It only needs one more, Garadeb, to complete the matter, and surely we can find one. I had a brother, but he is dead, and female relatives are disqualified. But there must surely be others in the world. I had heard that you handle strange cases, and that was why I sent for you. Of course, this American gentleman is quite right, and I should have taken his advice first, but I acted for the best. I think you acted very wisely indeed, said Holmes. But are you really anxious to acquire an estate in America? Certainly not, sir. Nothing would induce me to leave my collection. But this gentleman has assured me that he will buy me out as soon as we have established our claim. Five million dollars was the sum named— there are a dozen specimens in the market at the present moment which fill gaps in my collection, and which I am unable to purchase for want of a few hundred pounds. Just think what I could do with five million dollars. Why, I have the nucleus of a national collection. I shall be the Hans Sloan of my age. His eyes gleamed behind his great spectacles. It was very clear that no pains would be spared by Mr. Nathan Garadeb in finding a namesake. I merely called to make your acquaintance, and there is no reason why I should interrupt your studies, said Holmes. I prefer to establish personal touch with those with whom I do business. There are few questions I need ask— for I have your very clear narrative in my pocket, and I filled up the blanks when this American gentleman called. I understand that up to this week you were unaware of his existence. That is so. He called last Tuesday. Did he tell you of our interview today? Yes, he came straight back to me. He had been very angry. Why should he be angry? He seemed to think it was some reflection on his honour. But he was quite cheerful again when he returned. Did he suggest any course of action? No, sir, he did not. Has he had or asked for any money from you? No, sir, never. You see no possible object he has in view? None, except what he states. Did you tell him of our telephone appointment? Yes, sir, I did. Holmes was lost in thought. I could see that he was puzzled. "'Have you any articles of great value in your collection?' "'No, sir, I am not a rich man. "'It is a good collection, but not a very valuable one. "'You have no fear of burglars?' "'Not the least. "'How long have you been in these rooms?' "'Nearly five years.' "'Holmes's cross-examination was interrupted "'by an imperative knocking at the door.' No sooner had our client unlatched it than the American lawyer burst excitedly into the room. "'Here you are,' he cried, waving a paper over his head. "'I thought I should be in time to get you. Mr. Nathan Garadeb, my congratulations. You are a rich man, sir. Our business is happily finished, and all is well. As to you, Mr. Holmes, we can only say we are sorry if we have given you any useless trouble.' He handed over the paper to our client, who stood staring at a marked advertisement. Holmes and I leaned forward and read it over his shoulder. This is how it ran. Howard Garadeb, Constructor of Agricultural Machinery. Binders, Reaper's Steam and Hand Plows, 
drills, harrows, farmers' carts, buckboards, and all other appliances. Estimates for artesian wells. Apply Grosvenor Buildings, Aston. Glorious, gasped our host. That makes our third man. I had opened up inquiries in Birmingham, said the American, and my agent there has sent me this advertisement from a local paper. We must hustle and put the thing through. I have written to this man and told him that you will see him in his office tomorrow afternoon at four o'clock. You want me to see him? What do you say, Mr. Holmes? Don't you think it would be wiser? Here am I, a wandering American with a wonderful tale. Why should he believe what I tell him? But you are a Britisher with solid references, and he is bound to take notice of what you say. I would go with you, if you wished, but I have a very busy day tomorrow, and I could always follow you if you are in any trouble. Well, I have not made such a journey for years. It is nothing, Mr. Garadab. I have figured out your connections. You leave at twelve and should be there soon after two. Then you can be back the same night. All you have to do is to see this man, explain the matter, and get an affidavit of his existence. By the Lord, he added hotly, considering I've come all the way from the center of America, it is surely little enough if you go a hundred miles in order to put this matter through. Quite so, said Holmes. I think what this gentleman says is very true. Mr. Nathan Garadeb shrugged his shoulders with a disconsolate air. Well, if you insist, I shall go said he. It is certainly hard for me to refuse you anything, considering the glory of hope that you have brought into my life. Then that is agreed, said Holmes, and no doubt you will let me have a report as soon as you can. I'll see to that, said the American. Well, he added, looking at his watch, I'll have to get on. I'll call tomorrow, Mr. Nathan, and see you off to Birmingham. Coming my way, Mr. Holmes? Well, then, good-bye and we may have good news for you tomorrow night. I noticed that my friend's face cleared when the American left the room, and the look of thoughtful perplexity had vanished. I wish I could look over your collection, Mr. Garadeb, said he. In my profession, all sorts of odd knowledge comes useful, and this room of yours is a storehouse of it. Our client shone with pleasure, and his eyes gleamed from behind his big glasses. "'I had always heard, sir, that you were a very intelligent man,' said he. "'I could take you round now if you have the time.' "'Unfortunately, I have not. "'But these specimens are so well labelled and classified "'that they hardly need your personal explanation. "'If I should be able to look in tomorrow, "'I presume that there would be no objection to my glancing over them?' "'None at all. You are most welcome.' The place will, of course, be shut up, but Mrs. Saunders is in the basement up to four o'clock, and would let you in with her key. Well, I happen to be clear tomorrow afternoon. If you would say a word to Mrs. Saunders, it would be quite in order. By the way, who is your house agent? Our client was amazed at the sudden question. Holloway and Steele, in the Edgware Road, but why? "'I am a bit of an archaeologist myself when it comes to houses,' said Holmes, laughing. "'I was wondering if this was Queen Anne or Georgian. "'Georgian, beyond doubt. "'Really, I should have thought a little earlier. "'However, it is easily ascertained. "'Well, good-bye, Mr. Garadab, and may you have every success in your Birmingham journey.' 
The house agent's was close by, but we found that it was closed for the day, so we made our way back to Baker Street. It was not till after dinner that Holmes reverted to the subject. "'Our little problem draws to a close,' said he. "'No doubt you have outlined the solution in your own mind.' "'I can make neither head nor tail of it.' "'The head is surely clear enough, and the tail we should see to-morrow. "'Did you notice nothing curious about that advertisement?' "'Oh, I saw that the word plow was misspelt.' "'Oh, you did notice that, did you? "'Come, Watson, you improve all the time.' "'Yes, it was bad English, but good American. "'The printer had set it up as received.' Then the buckboards, that is American also, and artesian wells are commoner with them than with us. It was a typical American advertisement, but purporting to be from an English firm. What do you make of that? I can only suppose that this American lawyer put it in himself. What his object was, I fail to understand. Well, there are alternative explanations— Anyhow, he wanted to get this good old fossil up to Birmingham. That is very clear. I might have told him that he was clearly going on a wild goose chase, but on second thoughts it seemed better to clear the stage by letting him go. Tomorrow, Watson. Well, tomorrow will speak for itself. Holmes was up and out early. When he returned at lunchtime, I noticed that his face was very grave. "'This is a more serious matter than I had expected, Watson,' said he. "'It is fair to tell you so, though I know it will only be an additional reason to you for running your head into danger. I should know my Watson by now, but there is danger, and you should know it.' "'Well, it is not the first we have shared, Holmes. I hope it may not be the last. What is the particular danger this time?' "'We are up against a very hard case.' i have identified mr john garadeb counsellor at law he is none other than killer evans of sinister and murderous reputation i fear i am none the wiser ah it is not part of your profession to carry about a portable newgate calendar in your memory i have been down to see friend lestrade at the yard there may be an occasional want of imaginative intuition down there, but they lead the world for thoroughness and method. I had an idea that we might get on the track of our American friend in their records. Sure enough, I found his chubby face smiling up at me from the rogue's portrait gallery. James Winter, alias Moorcraft, alias Killer Evans, was the inscription below. Holmes drew an envelope from his pocket. I scribbled down a few points from his dossier. Aged 44, native of Chicago, known to have shot three men in the States, escaped from penitentiary through political influence, came to London in 1893, shot a man over cards in a nightclub in the Waterloo Road in January 1895. Man died, but he was shown to have been the aggressor in the row. Dead man was identified as Roger Prescott, famous as forger and coroner in Chicago. Killer Evans, released in 1901, has been under police supervision since, but so far as known, has led an honest life. A very dangerous man. Usually carries arms and is prepared to use them. That is our bird, Watson, a sporting bird, as you must admit. But what is his game? 
Well, it begins to define itself. I have been to the house agents. Our client, as he told us, has been there five years. It was unlet for a year before then. The previous tenant was a gentleman at large named Waldron. Waldron's appearance was well remembered at the office. He had suddenly vanished, and nothing more had been heard of him. He was a tall, bearded man with very dark features. Now, Prescott, the man whom Killer Evans had shot, was, according to Scotland Yard, a tall, dark man with a beard. As a working hypothesis, I think we may take it that Prescott, the American criminal, used to live in the very room which our innocent friend now devotes to his museum. So at last we see a link, you see. And the next link? Well, we must go now and look for that. He took a revolver from the drawer and handed it to me. I have my old favorite with me. If our Wild West friend tries to live up to his nickname, we may be ready for him. I'll give you an hour for a siesta, Watson, and then I think it will be time for our Ryder Street adventure. It was just four o'clock when we reached the curious apartment of Nathan Garadeb. Mrs. Saunders, the caretaker, was about to leave, but she had no hesitation in admitting us, for the door shut with a spring lock, and Holmes promised to see that all was safe before we left. Shortly afterwards the outer door closed, her bonnet passed the bow window, and we knew that we were alone in the lower floor of the house. Holmes made a rapid examination of the premises. There was one cupboard in a dark corner which stood out a little from the wall. It was behind this that we eventually crouched, while Holmes, in a whisper, outlined his intentions. He wanted to get our amiable friend out of his room. That is very clear. And as the collector never went out, it took some planning to do it. The whole of this Garadab invention was apparently for no other end. I must say, Watson, that there is a certain devilish ingenuity about it, even if the queer name of the tenant did give him an opening which he could hardly have expected, he wove his plot with remarkable cunning. But what did he want? Well, that is what we are here to find out. It has nothing whatever to do with our client, so far as I can read the situation. It is something connected with the man he murdered, the man who may have been his confederate in crime. There is some guilty secret in the room, that is how I read it. At first I thought our friend might have something in his collection more valuable than he knew, something worth the attention of a big criminal. But the fact that Roger Prescott of evil memory inhabited these rooms points to some deeper reason. Well, Watson, we can but possess our souls of patience and see what the hour may bring. That hour was not long in striking. We crouched closer in the shadow as we heard the outer door open and shut. Then came the sharp metallic snap of a key, and the American was in the room. He closed the door softly behind him, took a sharp glance around him to see that all was safe, threw off his overcoat, and walked up to the central table with the brisk manner of one who knows exactly what he has to do and how to do it. He pushed the table to one side, tore up the square of carpet on which it rested, rolled it completely back, and then, drawing a jemmy from his inside pocket, he knelt down and worked vigorously upon the floor. Presently we heard the sound of sliding boards, and an instant later a square had opened in the planks. 
Killer Evans struck a match, lit a stump of candle, and vanished from our view. Clearly our moment had come. Holmes touched my wrist as a signal, and together we stole across to the open trap-door. Gently as we moved, however, the old floor must have creaked under our feet, for the head of our American, peering anxiously round, emerged suddenly from the open space. His face turned upon us with a glare of baffled rage, which gradually softened into a rather shamefaced grin as he realized that two pistols were pointed at his head. "'Well, well,' said he, coolly, as he scrambled to the surface, "'I guess you have been one too many for me, Mr. Holmes. "'Saw through my game, I suppose, and played me for a sucker from the first. "'Well, sir, I hand it to you. "'You have me beat, and in an instant he had whisked out a revolver from his breast "'and had fired two shots. "'I felt a sudden hot sear as if a red-hot iron had been pressed to my thigh. "'There was a crash as Holmes's pistol came down on the man's head.' I had a vision of him sprawling upon the floor with blood running down his face, while Holmes rummaged him for weapons. Then my friend's wiry arms were around me, and he was leading me to a chair. "'You're not hurt, Watson. For God's sake, say that you are not hurt.' It was worth a wound. It was worth many wounds to know the depth of loyalty and love which lay behind that cold mask. The clear, hard eyes were dimmed for a moment, and the firm lips were shaking. For the one and only time I caught a glimpse of a great heart as well as of a great brain. All my years of humble but single-minded service culminated in that moment of revelation. It's nothing, Holmes. It's a mere scratch. He had ripped up my trousers with his pocket-knife. You're right, he cried with an immense sigh of relief. It is quite superficial. His face set like flint as he glared at our prisoner, who was sitting up with a dazed face. "'By the Lord, it is as well for you. "'If you had killed Watson, you would not have got out of this room alive. "'Now, sir, what have you to say for yourself?' "'He had nothing to say for himself. "'He only lay and scowled. "'I leaned on Holmes's arm, and together we looked down into the small cellar "'which had been disclosed by the secret flap. "'It was still illuminated by the candle which Evans had taken down with him. "'Our eyes fell upon a mass of rusted machinery.' great rolls of paper, a litter of bottles, and, neatly arranged upon a small table, a number of neat little bundles. "'A printing press! A counterfeiter's outfit!' said Holmes. "'Yes, sir,' said our prisoner, staggering slowly to his feet and then sinking into the chair. "'The greatest counterfeiter London ever saw! That's Prescott's machine! And those bundles on the table—' For two thousand of Prescott's notes, worth a hundred each, and fit to pass anywhere. Help yourselves, gentlemen. Call it a deal, and let me beat it. Holmes laughed. We don't do things like that, Mr. Evans. There is no bolt-hole for you in this country. You shot this man Prescott, did you not? Yes, sir, and got five years for it, though it was he who pulled on me— Five years, when I should have had a medal the size of a soup-plate. No living man could tell a Prescott from a Bank of England, and if I hadn't put him out, he would have flooded London with them. I was the only one in the world who knew where he made them. Can you wonder that I wanted to get to the place? And can you wonder that when I found this crazy boob of a bug-hunter, with the queer name squatting right on top of it and never quitting his room— 
I had to do the best I could to shift him. Maybe I would have been wiser if I had put him away. It would have been easy enough, but I'm a soft-hearted guy that can't begin shooting unless the other man has a gun also. But say, Mr. Holmes, what have I done wrong, anyhow? I've not used this plant. I've not hurt this old stiff. Where do you get me? Only attempted murder, so far as I can see, said Holmes. But that's not our job. They take that at the next stage. What we wanted at present was just your sweet self. Please give the yard a call, Watson. It won't be entirely unexpected. So, those were the facts about Killer Evans and his remarkable invention of the three Garadibs. We heard later that our poor old friend never got over the shock of his dissipated dreams. When his castle in the air fell down, it buried him beneath the ruins. He was last heard of at a nursing home in Brixton. It was a glad day at the yard when the Prescott outfit was discovered, for though they knew that it existed, they had never been able, after the death of the man, to find out where it was. Evans had indeed done great service and caused several worthy CID men to sleep the sounder, for the counterfeiter stands in a class by himself as a public danger. They would willingly have subscribed to that soup-plate medal, of which the criminal had spoken, but an unappreciative bench took a less favourable view, and the killer returned to those shades from which he had just emerged. End of the Adventure of the Three Garadebs Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.